Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, The Secret Science of Surfaces with Laurie Winkless and her new book, Sticky. Laurie Winkless is an Irish physicist and author. After a physics degree and a master's in space science, she joined the UK's National Physical Laboratory as a research scientist specialising in functional materials. Now based in New Zealand, Laurie has been communicating science to the public for 15 years. Laurie's first book was Science of the City, which we talked about on Little Atoms a few years ago, and her writing has featured in outlets including Forbes, Wired and Esquire. And today we're talking about Laurie's second book, Sticky, The Secret Science of Surfaces. Laurie, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thanks very much, Neil. It's lovely to be back. I guess we should establish what we mean by sticky in the context of this book. Mm. Yeah, I I think I take a fairly liberal uh, definition of the word sticky. For me, the reason I chose to to name this book sticky is because I feel like it's a word that we all have our own sense of of what it means. You know, if you you ask someone what to name a sticky substance, there's a few that will come up, you know, like honey, um, super glue, maybe some sort of sugary surface, you know, some sort of sugary liquid. They're usually the things that come up. But for me, I found it interesting that there isn't really a word. There isn't really a scientific definition for the word sticky. There's no kind of metric by which we can define how sticky something is. So I've kind of broadened it out really to mean um, stickiness in the traditional sense, like a honey, a viscous, sticky, adhesive uh, material, but also to include solid interactions. So really to do with friction, you know, static and dynamic friction between solids and also friction between molecules at the atomic scale. So yeah, my definition of sticky for the purposes of this book is it's pretty broad, but that's to say that there isn't really a definition of sticky in the first place. So I'm not entirely wrong, I don't think. <laughs> so the book starts off with uh, a discussion of paint and fundamentally mm. how paint works, how it stays on the wall, how it stays together. Um, but you also do this through a look at thousands of year old Aboriginal art. Yeah, it was a really interesting journey, I suppose. I hate that word, but for me, um, because I had thought, you know, where do I start this? Where do I start talking about stickiness? And where do I start talking about paints and, and how we've kind of made our mark 
you know, very in a, in a very real way on, on the planet. And I couldn't really think of anywhere better than to start looking at kind of ancient rock art sites. And, you know, there have been rock art sites that have been dated to 40,000 years old. There's, there's even one that might be 60,000 years old. Um, so this has been, there's been a very long time, a very long history of humans actually using materials from the earth to make our mark and to reflect things that they experience in daily life. And being in New Zealand, becoming more and more aware of Aboriginal history and really, you know, through how it's been erased, especially in, in more recent years, I really wanted to to talk to some people who actually, you know, traditional knowledge holders and artists who, who use the techniques that have been passed down through their ancestors. And I also wanted to look at it from the kind of, in inverted commas, scientific point of view. So, you know, what's actually going on on the surface. So I was really lucky to get in touch with some incredible people, mostly through the University of Melbourne. But I got to interview uh, Gabriel Nodia, who's a very esteemed artist and a knowledge holder of the Gidget people, so in, in the Kimberley in Australia. And I got to talk to him about the process of making his paints. And, you know, he, as a modern painter, uses some modern techniques. So he will use modern kind of uh, mixers within their pigments. So he will use ochre in that, I mean, rock and bits of earth that are ground together to create this pigment, this pigmenty paste. And he will mix that with modern glues and adhesives and modern resins. But his forefathers, there's still a lot of mystery about what the extra ingredients were. We know for sure that there were a couple of more modern, in more recent kind of in the last century, um, artists who did use animal blood as a binder to bind the pigments together. We know that, but that's not always the case. We can't say that's always the case. You can mix pigment and water together to create something that kind of approximates a paint, but that paint is not going to stick around on a surface for very long. Like once the water evaporates, you're just left with dust and the dust will rub off. So we know there were some binder materials added. If not blood, perhaps certain glues or certain gums. You know, we've got gum trees in this part of the world that produce naturally the sticky substance. Perhaps they use that. Um, But we're not entirely sure. We can't say for sure what these paints are made of. And that's partly because they're made of the same stuff that they're painted onto. They are made up of crushed rock and they're painted onto rock. So it's actually really difficult to pick apart the paints to understand precisely what went into them. Throughout the book, you this book called Sticky, you talk about a number of things that are the opposite of sticky, we could say. Ice springs to mind. But I wanted to talk about the lotus flower. And Mm -hmm. basically the lotus flower is revered uh, in the cultures that revere it because of its its sort of pristine appearance, even if it's in some muddy swamp. And let's Mm. talk about how the lotus flower keeps its pristine appearance. Yeah, it's actually the leaf of the lotus plant rather than the flower. That's that's the that's the really clever bit. Um, so the kind of large green leaves, um, rather than the very beautiful kind of pale pink and, and white flowers that we see on them. And it's been a little while now since we've understood what's going on there. And it's quite clever in that it's a combination of two different effects. So if you stick a lotus leaf into a scanning electron microscope, as I've been <laughs> lucky enough to do um, several years ago, what you'll see is that the surface of the leaf is actually very heavily textured. It's covered in these bumps, these kind of micro and then on top of those nano bumps. So very, very small bumps that are arranged so that they're kind of what we call hierarchical. So we've got different size features layered on top of one another. And what those features do is they effectively don't allow water to penetrate 
between these features. You know, they're so small, they're so densely packed, closely packed to one another. And the surface tension of water is is so high, you know, water really wants to hold on to itself. The combination means that water tends to form almost beautifully spherical droplets on top of a lotus leaf. It can't penetrate into that structure. The leaf is also slightly waxy. There's a kind of a a waxy coating on leaves. And this is true for a lot of leaves too. Um, So when you see a waxy leaf and you drop some water onto it, usually that water will roll off because wax, these types of natural waxes are hydrophobic. So they repel water. So in the lotus leaf, you have the combination of those effects. And what it means is that, like you said, when you submerge it, even into very dirty water, that water cannot get a grip on to the leaf. It cannot penetrate in between these bumps and it's repelled by the slightly waxy coating um, that's on the leaf. And so instead of sticking onto it, it, it just rolls off. And you can imagine the experience of seeing that for the first time, pulling up things from muddy water and then seeing these incredibly pristine, bright green leaves. It must have been a real, a really astonishing moment. And now, now we really understand what's going on on that scale. And we're starting to see technologies that are taking inspiration from that, um, trying to kind of reproduce both the structure and the hydrophobic surfaces to give us water repellent surfaces that we can rely on. Usually we kind of rely on, on the chemical side. So we rely on the waxes or the hydrophobic materials, but we are starting to see technologies where they're also starting to pattern and texture the surface in a similar way to the lotus leaf to get the same effect. And something else, the the, the part of this chapter where you talk about the lotus leaf leads to is a, a discussion of Teflon and you um mm. you raise the, the old joke of how do they get Teflon to actually stick to the pan? So... I guess we should talk about how do they? It's a mixture of different things. Now, I should say that I could not find a definitive answer for, (laughs) well, I'll say I was specifically looking at one manufacturer of Teflon pan and I couldn't find anything that said that this is exactly how they do it. But what we do know about Teflon is that Teflon, first of all, is a trademark, right? So scientists will call it PTFE, but it's the same thing. And what it is, is a really long kind of spine of carbon atoms and it's surrounded by these fluorine atoms. And the bond between carbon and fluorine is unbelievably strong, like incredibly strong. And it's almost impossible to kind of chemically mess with it. And that's what makes it so non-stick because literally nothing is attracted to these CF bonds. Like these CF bonds are completely repellent to everything that isn't a carbon or a fluorine. But yeah, so to get it onto a surface, you kind of have, I think, you kind of have two options. One is that you basically sandblast whatever your surface is. So in the case of a frying pan, it's probably an aluminium or something like that. So you sandblast that really to damage the aluminium and and get as many divots and, and dents and bumps and even some cracks in it. And then you spray a very thin coating of Teflon on top of that. And rather than doing anything chemical, it doesn't actually react with the aluminium. It just kind of gets stuck in all of these crevices. So it's kind of like, it's what we call like a mechanical adhesion. It's more just that the Teflon can't get out because you've made it really hard for it to escape. It's not a smooth surface. It's a rough, divoted surface. Once you have that thin layer of Teflon on, then you can just whack on more layers of Teflon and it it will stick very happily to itself. So that's kind of one option. Oh, and you also have to bake the Teflon in place. You know, you kind of heat it up to make it go solid, right? That's one option. The other option is 
that you can try and break those CF bonds so you can bombard it with very high energy particles, try and push some of those carbon fluorine bonds apart and try to basically leave some of the carbon, this backbone of carbon, try to leave some of that exposed. Once that's exposed, you can get other things to to stick to it but you really you know breaking that bond takes an awful lot of energy so my expectation or understanding is that the first approach this mechanical approach where you you know roughen up an aluminium surface is probably the one that we see used most often you tell the story in the book of the the surprising many decades long search by scientists to try and figure out how a gecko climbs a wall Mm. um tell us along the way some of the ways we used to think Oh, yeah, that's a great question, because there were so many. And I I definitely thought I had some of these wrong as well. You know, I was like, oh, initially, maybe it's to do with uh, like a suction pad. (laughs) Maybe it's maybe it's a suction pad and the gecko foot kind of traps a little pocket of vacuum in its feet. But that's not the case. So that that was kind of considered and then disregarded. And you can see why, right? Because Suction cups don't rely on any sort of gloopy adhesive material to stick. It's just about removing a bit of air. And we kind of, scientists knew that from a very long time ago, that geckos don't really leave any sticky substance behind. So that's kind of a, that's a good starting point, really. Then it kind of, uh, it kind of went towards looking at the surface area. So trying to understand that if there was something on a gecko's foot that was allowing it to, you know, increase the surface area that it was making between its foot and whatever surface it was, it was walking on. That has, it's not entirely wrong, but it was kind of became a lot more optimized as we went through. There were even suggestions that maybe this, if we looked at a gecko's foot in enough detail, we'd find that it was covered in tiny little hooks, you know, like, like climbers crampon boots. That wasn't the case either. So yeah, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of kind of ideas that were considered experiments carried out and and usually discarded by the end. So it's not suction, it's not micro interlocking, it's not entirely related to friction, but yeah, it's it's much cleverer than that. And so tell us something about the the gecko's foot, because this is something that it's almost like one of those fractal you yeah. know those fractal pictures that you you look into and it just it just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going if you look at a gecko through a microscope yeah that's exactly it all of the gecko experts i end up speaking to talked about this thing and you know i've already met, said this word hierarchical um, but this is especially true for the gecko's foot because if you start just by looking at its foot usually it has kind of four or five toes depending on the species and those toes themselves are quite strong and quite flexible so that's one way that they can kind of grip onto a surface. They sometimes have claws as well, which can be useful to grip onto, you know, a rough bark of a tree, for example. Then you look at each one of the toes. And just when you look with your eyes, if you've ever gotten to look at a gecko's foot, you will have noticed that there are these kind of long strips uh, across each gecko's toes. Uh, They're called lamellae. And the idea, initial idea for that was, oh, maybe, maybe it's just very flexible. Maybe this material helps them to conform to slightly rougher surfaces. So, you know, you've got your claws, your bendy toes and these flaps of skin. But as our microscopes or microscope technology improved and we could look in more detail at these lamellae, these, these strips of skin, we realized that they were actually covered in a very dense forest of hairs and they're called setae. 
and I mean incredibly densely packed hairs you know this is something you cannot see with the naked eye and then again another change in microscope technology meant that we could now look at the tips of these hairs and and the tips of these tiny hairs and these are just less than a micron in size these are really small the tips of these hairs are actually split ends basically it's they have a very very bad case of split ends so each hair splits out into lots and lots of other hairs and those hairs can be just a few atoms in width so we've got this the whole way through from the foot right down to these nanoscale tiny you know atomically probing hairs <laughs> at the end uh, of, of a gecko's foot so right across that whole range that's what allows them to be as you know such successful climbers and to be able to tackle ranges of surfaces that we have no equivalent of um, we've never invented anything as as clever as a gecko's foot can a gecko climb teflon though Oh yeah, that's that was like an ultimate question that I actually asked that a few times of some of the of some of the scientists. Um, and yeah, yes, kind of. Um, it was a funny one because it was really disregarded quite early on. It is such a classic, though. You know, who'd win in a battle between blah blah blah. Um, it was initially looked at, I think, in the seventies, if I remember correctly. Might might have been earlier. And, you know, it's just too slippery for them to climb, right? So when I talked to some researchers who said that they had done the experiment just, I think, about less than 10 years ago, for sure, it was motivated by a student who was just mad keen to try it. And, you know, the supervisor was like, we're pretty sure they're not going to be able to to climb on it. But what they found kind of surprised them. If there is water present, somehow the gecko can climb or move across Teflon. And they don't really understand why that's the case, right? Water is usually something that interrupts animals from being able to climb onto things. You think about even yourself, you know, a slippery surface can be harder to, to move across than a dry one. So they they don't quite fully understand what's going on, but in a way it kind of reflects what they see in nature. You know, if you think about most geckos, not all, but most geckos live in tropical climates where you have lots of these really waxy hydrophobic leaves, these really slippery leaves, and you also have lots of water. So geckos' feet are have almost certainly evolved to use or to manipulate or sometimes to overcome these wet surfaces. But yeah, they still don't really fully understand what's going on there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Laurie Winkless and we're talking about her new book, Sticky, The Secret Science of Surfaces. And a couple of areas of uh, fluid dynamics to begin with in the second half, Laurie. And you, and you look at how bodies move through water, so how how a swimmer can move through water. and But also, interestingly, through this quest to design an ever better, more dynamic swimsuit. So tell us something mm. about that. Yeah, this was one of the topics that I kind of knew early on I wanted to include in the book, which is kind of hilarious because I, I don't really swim myself. Um, but I remember seeing the first time I saw these full body swimsuits, you know, these high neck, long sleeve, long legs, basically looked like a wetsuit swimsuit at the Olympics and it was in that era where I felt like records were being broken almost on a weekly basis you know you had Michael Phelps and you had um, Ian Thorpe and you had lots of of swimmers like that who were wearing these very fancy high-tech suits. I also remember there being a fair amount of controversy around them around how they work around you know what benefits they confer to a swimmer and and if that's fair or not and that they are somehow related to sharks right this they're like shark inspired swimsuits so I knew it was something I wanted to delve into in a bit of detail and I was pretty lucky that I got to speak to um, Fiona Fairhurst who actually designed who kind of kick-started this fast skin suit project at Speedo so chatting to her was really interesting What I kind of found is that everyone agrees that these suits worked. They really did reduce the drag that a body experiences when it moves through the water. It really, really did make swimmers faster. But what there's definite disagreement on was what the mechanism is that causes that. The thing, you know, as with all products, you'll have companies who who want to protect it and they patent the technology. So the benefit of that is that we can see the patents and we can see what dis- design decisions were made in putting the suit together. So we you know we knew it was these kind of uh, these panels of a of a very stretchy elastane fabric um, that its seams were really carefully placed and all of these things. So we know what the suit is made of, but measuring drag on a swimming body is actually incredibly complicated because there are multiple types of drag that act on a body. It's very hard to separate them out from one another and therefore it's it's pretty hard to, to understand what precise type of drag a swimsuit's design could reduce. And the types of drag are things like form drag that's related to the shape of your body, wave drag which is when you kind of swim, you, you push packets of water out of the way and that kind of sucks on your energy a bit. That, that's a type of drag. And then you've got skin friction, which is the one that I think 
swimmers are personally very aware of and as often why you see people you know shaving their entire bodies <laughs> getting themselves as smooth as possible so these suits definitely had a role to play in each in reducing each type of drag but what was interesting was finding research that suggested that this pattern surface had literally nothing at all in common <laughs> with the shark skin. And in fact, sometimes the fabric, when scientists, shark scientists, tested how the fabric performed compared to real shark skin, they actually found that the fabric was better when you turned it inside out <laughs> than it was the right way out. And so I found that really interesting that, okay, it probably has nothing, it's not to do with the fact that it's covered in these patterns that copy the patterns that cover a shark skin that's that's probably not true but what a lot of the research suggests is that it reduced drag mostly through form drag it basically was so tight it kind of held the swimmers muscle groups you know really tightly gave them lots of support meant that they had they wasted less energy in keeping their posture in the water. Some of the later versions of the suit were even slightly buoyant. So it probably means that swimmers were swimming higher in the water. So experiencing less drag for that reason. And it probably reduced the skin friction a little bit as well. So they worked, but they didn't quite work in the same way that perhaps the very hypey um, media around the suits suggested so that was kind of interesting to me to to dig into that and even though it's a few years old I felt like it's a story that hadn't really been told in a full kind of entirely wrapped up way so it was something I really wanted to dig into. We all know how difficult it is to move through water whether you're swimming Mm. or wading and we don't really think the same about air but of course air is a is another medium that surrounds us that we actually walk through and you talk in the book about you know things like how planes stay up in the air and stuff but I wanted to talk about why a golf ball has dimples oh yeah oh great this is one of my favorites (laughs) again not a golfer but somehow (laughs) I felt like it was something I should look into um yeah so for a really long time in golf the golf balls were seen as something that should be really hard and smooth Right, you should make it really dense. And I think they used, uh, maybe it's not goose feathers, but it's some sort of feather, I can't remember. Um, So they would stuff a kind of a leather ball with feathers and as densely as they could to make it really hard and and the leather should be really smooth. And that kind of was replaced then by a, a kind of a rubbery-like compound, but again, kept really smooth. That was the goal. It's like, yep, yeah, a smooth ball will travel far. But as especially with these rubbery the rubber balls um players started to realize that when they played with the ball for a while and it got a few dings and dents in it that often that ball would often fly further than one of their new one of their new golf balls so they were like wow maybe there's something in this and actually some professional players um or semi-professional players then uh started to deliberately damage the ball (laughs) in the hope that it would make it fly a bit further but there was no kind of science being done this was all just let's just figure it out this seems to work let's go this direction but that motivated one manufacturer to create a kind of a properly a textured ball and it was called a bramble pattern so you can kind of imagine like a bramble berry bumpy on the on the outer surface um, and, and they became really really popular but then a different engineer um someone who also golfed uh was like 
frustrated by the lack of science that had been put into a golf ball. He's like, nah, there must be a scientific way that we can test why these these textured balls seem to move a bit further than the than the smooth balls. And what he realized was that the presence of, of this texture was kind of interrupting the flow of air around it and where and when in the ball's flight pockets of turbulent air would start to build up around the ball because turbulence would often we think of it as something that kind of drags on on a ball or drags on something that moves through the air so this was I think it was William Taylor I think his name is who is still a golfing man a golf ball manufacturer now uh, he put them put these balls into this kind of wind tunnel that he designed and he realized that actually the bramble was good but what was even better was an inverted version of the bramble pattern so a ball that was covered in dimples and that's the ball that he patented and it's the ball that we now consider like the default ball in golf so what happens is as a dimple ball is moving through the air air flows around the ball that's that's how it moves through the air Um, but the presence of dimples actually reduces the amount of turbulence that the ball produces behind it it also changes the size of this packet of turbulent air that builds up behind the ball and in a smooth ball this packet of turbulence can actually be much larger than the ball itself and that turbulent chaotic air drags on the ball and 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 slows it down but on a dimpled ball the presence of the dimples delays the separation of these air layers from the ball so it makes the pocket of turbulence much much smaller and and further behind the ball so that you reduce the drag because of that you reduce the amount of chaotic turbulent air dragging on the ball so it is it was something that started off as an instinctive understanding or you know an observational understanding of um, a slightly dinged up ball moves a bit quicker than a smooth ball but that did start to to transform as as scientists started to scientists and engineers started to to pay attention to what's going on so yeah these these shallow dimples on a golf ball we think of them and they act really as as these kind of tiny little imperfections on the ball but those imperfections actually kind of reduce the drag that appears on on a ball yeah so it will travel about it's it's not quite exactly correct but um a dimpled ball experiences about half the amount of drag as a smooth ball of the same size and weight so it's quite a significant difference it basically means it can travel almost twice as far there's one more question then and as you mentioned in the book this is the sort of stupid question that a child would ask but it has a, <laughs> a very a very interesting answer um, why is i slippery yeah, <laughs> this is the question that I thought I knew the answer to. And that's a delight. Like as a, as a science journalist, um, having a preconceived notion and then having it smashed to smithereens is an absolute delight. Ice is slippery because of some weird stuff that's going on on the surface of said ice. And the slipperiness of ice depends very much on the temperature of the ice. So when we... In this particular experiment that that really proved why ice is slippery, they took a steel ball and they dragged it across an ice surface. And, And that's quite similar to how a steel skate blade moves across the ice, right? Steel on ice, the frictional interactions between those materials, we have a fairly good understanding of them. So good choice for this experiment. What they did is they changed the temperature of the ice 
and each time repeating these experiments. So dragging the ball across the ice, measuring the friction. And they did that at different temperatures of ice. And what they found is that as ice gets warmer, and we're saying, you know, as we go from minus 100 degrees C up to maybe like minus 40 degrees C, the friction between the steel ball and the ice decreases slowly. And it keeps decreasing until it reaches a minimum value at about minus seven degrees C. So ice is at its most slippery, the lowest friction at about minus seven degrees C. But what's weird is then between minus seven degrees C and zero degrees C, the friction increases dramatically, very suddenly. Like on the graph, it's an almost vertical line straight up. So something changes at minus seven degrees C. And what these scientists realized is that ice you know, we know, we think of, we know that ice tends to have this very highly crystalline structure on the surface of Earth. So each water molecule in ice is chemically bonded to four neighbours. That's all good for the bulk of the ice. But when you get onto the top surface of ice, some of the molecules there will only be bonded to three neighbours. You know, there might be a wiggling, a wiggling free uh, bond there on the surface of ice just because of the presence of, of air above it. So you d- it's not surrounded by water anymore. It's got some air there. At minus seven degrees C, though, what we also see are these doubly bonded water molecules. So instead of water being bonded to three neighbors, some of the water is only bonded to two neighbors. And these doubly bonded molecules of water are very different from the triply bonded ones. Rather than just kind of wiggling around in place, they can actually, they kind of act a bit like ball bearings. They kind of roll around the surface of the ice. They are much freer to move than you would think. And I think your listeners are probably thinking, well, ice molecules that move, that's water, right? (laughs) It's just water. But this is at minus seven degrees C. There should be no liquid water at minus seven degrees C. So when I interviewed the scientists about this, one of them was like, no, we can't call it a liquid. Like the furthest I'll go is a quasi liquid because it shouldn't be a liquid. Ice should not be a liquid at this temperature, but it does kind of behave like a liquid at that temperature. And that's why the friction is so incredibly low. And minus seven degrees C is also the temperature of ice that's used in Olympic speed skating. That's a temperature that they came to through experimentation and observation. This is the temperature at which these speed skaters tend to be able to move the quickest. But now we actually understand the, the molecular mechanism behind it and, and why ice is slippery at that temperature. What changes then is between minus seven and zero degrees C, the rest of the ice starts to soften up. You know, ice is starting to approach its melting point. So rather than the surface defining everything to do with the slipperiness of ice, the whole bulk of the ice is starting to soften up and these ice molecules are starting to loosen all of their bonds. And what that means is that like a skate or a steel ball in this case, moving across that softening ice starts to really dig into the ice. It starts to leave divots in the ice. And and that's what drives the friction way, way, way up again. And yeah, so speed skating, minus seven degrees C, friction at its absolute minimum, slipperiest ice you can get. But then other sports like ice hockey tend to happen at warmer temperatures, about minus five degrees C, because they do need to actually grip into the ice a little bit so they can change direction. And then you've got figure skaters who need to be able to gracefully leap from the ice and to do that, they need to get a grip on the ice too. So they, they need a softer ice. And unsurprisingly, that temperature is higher, minus three degrees C. So this slipperiness of ice, ice makers and Olympic athletes and winter sports athletes, 
have understood why ice is slippery and that it is that it has a different property at different temperatures for many 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 years but it's really only in the past decade that we've put the molecular mechanism behind it so i've been talking to laurie winkless we've been talking about her new book sticky the secret science of surfaces which is out now in the uk from bloomsbury sigma laurie thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about it my pleasure neil thank you very much for having me This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.